You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Yoni from, I guess, Margin.ai. Super happy to have you on. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Amazing. First off, let's talk about that domain name because it's quite unique. It's spelled M-R-G-N.ai. How did you get to it and how does it connect to, to what you're doing? I always love this story. So, uh, and I appreciate the fact that you appreciate it too. So um, we started the business about three and a half years ago and we were sitting around thinking, what, what's a good name for this type of business? So before I get into the type of business, I'll just tell you generically that we're generally in uh, the AI machine learning powered finance area for small business. Okay. So we were sitting there throwing around, you know, words that pertain to the area. And, uh, my wife actually came up with margin. And then we said, okay, how do we make that into like a cool, sexy 2023 type of startup name? So we took all the vowels out, of course, and we were doing it right around the time of the Super Bowl. Uh, this, you know, three and a half years ago, whatever it was, uh, it was Super Bowl 2019. And at, she, she suggested this name and we watched the Super Bowl and we must have heard the word margin mentioned at least a hundred times throughout the game. And we were like, this is the most broadly broadcasted uh, thing in the world. And they just heard the name of our future company a hundred times and they'll keep hearing it on every other broadcast of every other finance station, sports station, whatever. So that's how it's done. Amazing, amazing. But then let's start with the typical first question on the pod. What problem does Margin AI solve for its customers? So um, I think a, uh, I, I would hope that most of us are somewhat familiar with walking into a small business, your average pizza shop, or working with an accountant or anything like that, and realizing that they don't always have the necessary tools or the necessary business acumen. So they're really good at what they do. Um, so the chef is great at, you know, making food and running a restaurant, but they don't often know how much it costs to bring in a customer and what their gross margins are and things like that. Same thing for the accountants and same thing oftentimes for tech companies. Um, so mostly small businesses in general. So that's the problem we're looking to solve where we become really the digital business co-founder to the small business by leveraging AI. And then how did you end up targeting that? Because some say that small business are particularly hard to to go after just because uh, they have a lot of fluctuation in terms of going out of business and so on. So how did you end up uh, chasing that opportunity? So I'd like to use this uh, podcast as a stage to tell everybody that that is so inaccurate. You're right in the, perspe in the perspective, but this is, and we thought the same thing until we found out that it was completely, completely wrong. So what happened was initially we started the business on the premise that we would help only tech uh, startups. Um, and then we ran a closed beta last year and we ended up having more traditional small businesses sign up to it, uh, than tech companies. Uh, we turn now we've been engaging with our users for the last year or so. We ended up actually launching an open beta in January of this year. We have about a thousand small businesses on the platform right now. And, and all of them come back to us and they just engaging. What, how do we use the platform? How do we get this value and how do we do this? And it turns out it's all like uh, individual, um, uh, uh, creatives, like on Etsy, nonprofit, brick and mortar, um, artists, like all sorts of things like that. 
which shocked us entirely. So that's basically where we switched our focus away from just tech companies to the broader small business community. Um, and interestingly, we found that all of the other players in the space are targeting only tech, and we seem to be the only ones going after small business. Why do I say the perception is in- incorrect? Is because um, everybody seems to think that uh, we don't want to invest in small business because they fail within two years, when it's they're failing within two years because we don't invest in them. Now, the average person doesn't want to invest in, in uh, uh, average VC, let's say, doesn't want to invest in an individual small business, but now it's becoming a bit more popular to invest in companies like ours that tackle the broader range of small business. So, yeah, that's why uh, I've come to the conclusion that I have. Yeah. And then how do you, from more, I guess, more like, like a marketing perspective or even the product perspective, how do you see or how do you manage targeting such a, such, such a broad market? Because you mentioned it, the accountant, the pizza shop, the, the solopreneur on Etsy. All of those have maybe quite different needs, at least from the outside, that's what I would guess. So how do you manage keeping your platform so broad while still delivering massive value for them? Great, great question. So uh, if you think about it, every business has an accounting function within it, whether it's a human being, whether it's an an outsourced accountant, everybody's got expenses and revenue. Expenses are based on a chart of accounts, which is a list of your, your expense bucket. Everybody has a chart of accounts. My chart of accounts might look different than yours, but ultimately it's just a list. So that's an easy thing to replicate uh, over and over again. The revenue side is where it gets complicated. So everybody, there's uh, ha- Nick, ha- how many business models or revenue models do you think are in existence? Oh, amazing question. I yeah. have zero clue. I will just say like 23. No idea. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So it's shot in the dark. It's actually 81. All right, 81 different revenue models, okay? Now, we came out and we said, we don't want to boil the ocean. We're not going to try to take over all 81 revenue models. So we picked what we found to be the three low-hanging fruit, which is e- uh, any type of commerce, e-commerce, retail, brick and mortar. Uh, number two is professional services, anybody who offers consulting services of any kind, and then tech companies. Um, so everybody suffers from the exact same problem uh, across the board, all small business, because it's just an underserved sector. Uh, but there are nuances specifically to the revenue model that we have to address. So when you come into the platform, you choose what type of business you are, and then the rest of the, the experience is tailor-made to that type of business. So I have a bit of a, a background in terms of product. I'd love to dig yeah. into those like on the tactical level. So do you have virtually like a feature set of, let's just say like 20 features, and then you have the onboarding flow, the people choose, and then I let's say 13 of those get activated for the user or 15 or 17 or so is it really like a different kind of product on the same base or is it all the features are the same and the onboarding flow is different and the way you let's say guide or push people inside of the platform is different so how, how do you manage that like on a real like nitty gritty level, basically. Yeah. So that was um, the latter portion. So when you said it's just the onboarding process and nothing beyond the onboarding process, pretty much. So what happens is during the onboarding process, it takes just a couple of maybe a minute or two. You're going to tell us what type of one of those three businesses you are. And then what happens during the onboarding, we're just going to, depending on what you chose, we're going to ask you slightly differing questions around how you collect revenue. So for example, a tech company can be collecting revenue based on sessions, units, minutes, megabytes, gigabytes, um, flat-based 
uh, pricing, usage-based pricing, all sorts of different models. There's actually eight models within SaaS alone. Um, so we actually address all eight, um, but you would never know it. If you came in, all you're doing is answering a simple question, and then we take care of the rest behind the scenes. A professional services firm is going to handle uh, individual clients usually. So they're thinking, they're not thinking in terms of the masses of minutes, units, gigabytes, and things like that. They're thinking client by client by client. Whereas a retail shop is thinking in terms of selling units. They're not thinking in terms necessarily of foot traffic into the store, but how many hats and shoes and shirts did I sell? And so basically you tell us what type of business and then we're going to tailor make the questions to whether or not you're collecting money based on units, based on um, SKUs, based on clients, based on the masses, and so on. The way it translates into the platform, the only difference, the only minor nuance that no one would ever notice is if you're, um, once we create your budget for you uh, within a couple of seconds, then your, your financial model or your operating plan just will look a little different. So commerce, for example, we're going to show you on the revenue side how many units are being sold and how much revenue is derived from those sales. Whereas in tech, we're going to show you this is how many uh, minutes or gigabytes or whatever it is you sold, and this is how much revenue was derived. So that's really it. Otherwise, there's not a big difference in the problem that everybody's suffering from and the solution that we're bringing to the table. Interesting, because at first it sounded way, way, way more complicated in terms of like the overhead that you have as a startup to get to that. But then maybe let's switch gears a bit from like the product side and more to like building the company. So you're roughly three and a half years in. I stalked you on LinkedIn as one does, and it says 11 employees. Is that correct? Or how big are you right no, now? No, no, not 11. Uh, maybe we have to update our, uh, our profile. But um, no, um, we, are at, we are at a team of eight right now. We just brought on our eighth, uh, uh, which is a data scientist in New Jersey, and we're super happy to have her. Got and then how is that team of eight split up in terms of like engineering or product, marketing, and sales? I would say about 50% is engineering at our current stage. That wouldn't be traditional later on, um, but 50% engineering. And then we have one person for marketing, one person. We actually don't have any sales, uh, sales um, resources or, or, or people. Uh, we are doing everything in our power. We basically built a system around the platform and a marketing uh, mechanism that requires no inside sales or outside sales. And the reason for that is, uh, think about it. You're, you're, you're targeting millions of people. You're not going to go one by one. So what we will be doing in the future is bringing on a, uh, a high-level uh, business development or corporate development person for our partnership. Uh, but everything about the platform is designed for self-service, uh, all the way from pre-sales through to usage. Um, so that's about it. Otherwise, we've got a couple of interns on the, on the uh, team, um, but we've got a CTO, uh, head of product and UX UI design, and then myself as CEO. Uh, and then the rest are pretty much uh, engineers. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. And then before we started rolling, you told me a bit about your, your career history, so to say. And I, I would love to, to dig into that a bit. Tell us about what you did in the past and like how it led up to, to what you're doing today. You got it. So I've spent about 15 years as a COO, but particularly in the startup world. And startups can be considered small businesses. Um, during my time, I've taken part in a lot of fundraising, including an IPO and an uplift to the New York Stock Exchange. 
Uh, I currently live in New York, although I'm originally from Israel and lived for a very long time in, um, in Miami. Um, I am a mentor and a handful of accelerators and, uh, I invest as well. And so how did I get to where I am today is I was constantly finding myself wearing the CFO hat in an organization that couldn't afford a CFO or shouldn't have hired a CFO. Um, for example, Slack didn't hire their first CFO until nine years in just before they went public, which is a good, a good strategy in my opinion. So I always had to kind of scrape, scrape together financial data, KPIs, figuring out financial modeling, budgeting, management systems, all these things. And so throughout the years, I always hit a wall with those things. So um, there was one time about five years ago that my CEO had asked me to run an exercise of cutting our burn rate uh, down by 15%, but he wanted me to do it within 24 hours. And I said, there's absolutely no way that's happening by tomorrow using my Excel-based or Google Sheets-based model. And so that's what uh, made me go looking for a solution. I couldn't find one. And then I ended up deciding to build it myself. And as we've been building it, we've been discovering that, wow, this sector of small business also needs this and this sector needs this and so on and so forth. So it's just really grown in a very nice and organic way. Interesting. And then from this career as like a COO in the tech scene, what were or what are the biggest learnings that you're taking to being a founder right now? A few. So when we first started the company, I was coming from a place where we raised a good deal of public, uh, public capital. And so going into private, private startups, um, I found that, uh, for example, I would design my pitch decks with 50 slides and legalese and forward-looking uh, disclaimer statement, uh, statement disclaimers and all sorts of other things that everybody came back to me and said, Yoni, no, 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 that's not the world we're in right now. We're in the early stage startup world, get rid of everything, bring it down to 12 slides, get rid of the legalese and so on. So that was an interesting one. Then um, at the time, I would say probably about five to 10 years ago was a good time that you could actually raise capital on a pitch deck or an MVP. And that is no longer the case. And that's been a big learning point for me personally. So we came out strategically wanting to build an MVP just to demo to investors. And everybody came back and said, well, where are your users? Where's your revenue? Where's this? And we said, we're so early on. So they said, well, go figure it out and come back to us. So that's what we've basically been doing. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, that, uh, those are two learnings. I would say one major one in terms of our beta program was a very interesting one to us because we went into this and this is really good for all entrepreneurs, especially in the software world where you go into building a business and you think you know the exact per perfect way to build a, a, a product. And then you find out later that, wait a second, no, you did it the way that you thought was good, but not the way that the other million, million people thought was good. And so that's what we found is throughout our, uh, our open beta, especially, we found that the onboarding process was very clunky and painful. And so that's where we've been trying to improve the most. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see something very special on that side. So um, basically three major learning points, uh, throughout this entrepreneurial journey. Got it. And then just based on the career you had and how, let's say how more finance savvy you are compared to the average founder, how do you think about fundraising right now? And also like planning on raising further funds? due to the environment we're still in. I mean, it's still not looking too great in tech. VCs are still sitting on their hands a lot. So how, how, do, how do you see that, that thing? How do you manage that as a founder? 
Yeah, so um, I can kind of trace it back. So here's what I uh, trace it back historically for the last five or six years, but here's how I see it. So um, uh, I find that the pre-seed stage is very quickly disappearing in the current ecosystem. Uh, and why is that happening? So basically you've got angel, uh, angel stage companies on one hand, and then you've got seed stage companies on the other. Uh, angel companies, traditionally, nothing's changed there. They have to raise money from friends, family, or uh, you know, a, a lucky meeting with an angel. Um, seed stage is where you're getting in, in, into institutional capital, but pre-seed previously, you would also get institutional capital. There's a lot of pre-seed VCs out there. What's happening is about, uh, I can't remember, I want to say it was about six years ago that CrowdStrike went public, an amazing, amazing cybersecurity company, and they did fantastic. Immediately after that, all the other tech companies decided they were going to go public in a bubble that we saw and witnessed ourselves, and they were not profitable, unfortunately. So they all tanked very, very quickly. Um, all the way from, we're talking, including Zoom, by the way, Zoom did fantastic there and during the pandemic and then, you know, and then tank, um, Didi Chuck Singh in China and, and, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, and basically what happened was the investors said, we are not going to invest in, in, uh, in non-profitable companies. And so there became a, a very massive scrutiny around unit economics and revenue that has since trickled down into the VC landscape and therefore. Uh, investors now are wanting to see pre-seed companies with early revenue that is far beyond what they would be capable of bringing in with the resources that they have at that stage. And so that's where we're finding the pre-seed stage is very slowly disappearing. And just the other day, literally, I met a woman, an amazing, amazing entrepreneur who is a toxicologist and building um, a, plat it's a software platform backed by AI that basically replaces the need for animal-based testing. Uh, for specifically for the pharmaceutical industry. And eventually she wants to go into uh, food and beverage and, uh, and perfume. And basically she's at the same stage. And I said, it would be a real shame if this doesn't make it to market just because investors are weary about investing at the pre-seed stage. So that's what we're seeing right now. Okay, so would you say going into your angel round or thinking about the angel money you have left in the bank with the plan or knowing that this needs to last until you raise a proper seat? So yes. And then what I would do is very, very highly emphasize revenue. Do everything you can to build not an MVP that can't be used, but a commercial MVP. No one's going to expect it to be the Rolls Royce of your platform. Um, you need to build the, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, um, Peugeot of, uh, of, uh, of, of platforms and eventually you'll get there, but build it enough so that you can derive revenue build enough value into it for your end users get to, I would think between a thousand and five thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue, also known as MRR. And at that point, I think VCs will start looking at you very seriously as a pre-seed contender. Yeah. And then the 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 final to last question is tell us about a war story doesn't need to be in your current business can even be in your career because startups are always like fine and dandy and the stories are great that we see in TechCrunch but like being a founder can feel quite different so give us a peek behind the curtain there yeah sure so I'll give you a perfect example from one of my last roles where I spent six years at a conversational AI company and when I first came in Uh, I was tasked with basically taking over business operations, which had not been uh, really, uh, uh, no one had been attentive to it until then. So think about it, early stage startups, oftentimes just 
uh, ignore administrative process. And so I came in and we were spending over a million dollars a month uh, for a team of, at the time, was 55 uh, when we needed probably 30 people. Uh, and so my, my task at hand was to figure out how to make this business more efficient. So we spent two months doing a very deep dive financial analysis uh, and made a lot of different changes to get to uh, basically a $650,000 monthly burn rate down from a million, uh, which is terrific. We didn't sacrifice any productivity whatsoever. Uh, we had to get out of very lucrative contracts that we weren't making use of. We had to devise all sorts of processes and policies in order to make the business efficient. For example, people were able to go to the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the office manager at the time and simply ask her for the credit card to spend on whatever they wanted with no approval process whatsoever. So people were buying themselves $4,000 laptops and first class tickets and things like that with no eyeballs on those processes. So we fixed all of that up. Um, and it ended up being not too frictionful. Uh, we ended up rolling out all those policies and people really got on board understanding that in order to scale a software business, you have to have some process built in. For the maybe newer or less experienced founders who are, who, are, who are doing it for the first time, what's from your perspective, like the 80-20 the of financial discipline? Like what would you always have your eyes on, on the financial operational side, even though your main focus as an early stage founder is of course on product and marketing? Like what, what, what would you look at to make sure things don't slip? Yeah. So there's two things. Number one is I would say always vet out your vendors and merchants. So don't just decide to pull the trigger on the first one you meet because you, you love them, find others to compare to, um, and then keep an eye on them. You cannot just let someone you can't be paying someone on a recurring basis and let them do whatever they want without paying attention. You have to set goals because what I found in several businesses that didn't pay attention to these things is months, if not years later, they found they were paying people to do nothing, literally nothing. Um, and so that's number one. Uh, number two is use of proceeds. You're raising people, you're raising money from other people. It's other OPM, other people's money. Um, and you are the arbiter of that money. They worked very hard to earn that money and you need to make sure you're putting it to the right resources. And so I learned a very interesting lesson recently as a COO. I was always, my job is to be frugal in this world. I have to be cheap. I have to figure out how to do things at cost. Uh, and now I found out that being a CEO is a bit different and I need my COO to be that, 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 um, kind of voice of reason behind me to tame me. And so, um, we decided to come out of the gates initially by spending a very minimal amount of money on an MVP. And then I have a friend, for example, who, uh, spent 10 times what we did at the same stage in order to build his MVP, but his MVP came out number one, perfect and commercialized and ours was far from it. And so it wasn't about being cheap at that time. At that time, what we should have done was said, you know what, we pay for what we get, we get what we pay for. And therefore we have to invest more in order to get a very quality product in order to get us to the next stage. This is not a, 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 in a, a time in our, in our business life, uh, life cycle that we want to skimp. And so that was a big, big learning point for me. So looking at each dollar or euro, depending on where you're listening from, but making sure that the important things get the budget they need and they deserve. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. But also that you're probably going to get it wrong most of the time if you're trying to make those decisions entirely alone. Um, there's, a, there's a good thing that, um, that goes, uh, you put two investors in a room, uh, they'll walk out with 10 opinions. And that's generally, you know, everybody knows that from 
practicing their pitches with 50 people and everybody says something completely different. You need to get those perspectives and then you need to aggregate them together in your head and figure out and exercise your judgment to figure out what's right. Try not to just make impulsive decisions alone. Um, and that's, that's what I would leave you with. Yeah. I love it. And then as the final question, what's the big vision for margin.ai? Yeah. So um, I didn't actually give you the formal pitch, so I'll do that right now. Yes. I'll tell you that margin is the next generation or generations, plural, of business management and intelligence specifically for small business today. And the vision is larger. So what we do is small businesses can come into our platform right now very quickly on board, uh, especially if they have an I, uh, a cloud-based accounting system like QuickBooks, it's much quicker. We very quickly, in a matter of seconds, create a budget for them, and then they, they enter our simulator. Um, so they can manage their business to the budget now, and when they want to, they can go into the simulator and choose from a variety of different scenarios that can impact their cash flow that they want to simulate. So if they're considering taking a bank loan or selling equity in their business or They have to double the size of their team or change everybody's salary. They can actually simulate those in about three clicks on our platform. Uh, and now about three, it was about three months ago, we provisionally patented the AI portion of our platform, which is really going to become the business uh, co-founder to the small business. What it's going to be doing is taking small business data that's on our platform, your specific data, and comparing it to industry benchmarks. So we're going to be able to tell you, hey, your customer acquisition costs are 20% higher than industry norm, and this is what you can do about it. And we're going to tell you on a predictive basis, and we're going to tell you when various economical factors affect your business. For example, if the stock market crashes, how is it going to affect your specific business in your specific location? Um, so that's what we're doing right now. The grand vision is that eventually what this becomes is the next generation of traditional business intelligence. So business intelligence today is, charts, graphs, and spreadsheets, a lot of data that's being uh, uh, pulled together through various connections. Um, and what we want to do is basically feed you the same data, but in layman's terms, in human terms, in terms you can understand. So you don't have to sit there and try to figure out what these charts and graphs are telling you. And in addition, that's going to include economic data. So it's a lot more than just uh, speculative graphs, but rather hard factual data about your specific business. I love it. Yoni, thanks a ton for coming on again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.